Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Welcome to this, the latest edition of ESSR Feature here on Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. I'm your host, Stephen Wilson, and today, as you may have heard from the intro, we're going to be talking about one of the greatest wrestlers to ever come out of Japan, the king of strong style is Shinsuke Nakamura. We'll be going through his career, not just his run in WWE in NXT. No, he wrestled before that as well, you might have known, in New Japan, where he's pretty much a bit of a cult figure over in New Japan Pro Wrestling, so we're going to be talking about all of that over the next 90 minutes or so, but before we get into that, just a little bit of the usual housekeeping from us. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet. If you've not subscribed to us before, then please subscribe to us on any good podcasting platform, be it the one that you're listening to this show on right now, or any other ones. It could be Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. We're on pretty much all of them. And we're also on YouTube. Just search for us again on that Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. We've got some great content on there, including Conspiracy Theory with David Campbell, Quiz Showdown with Daniel Campbell. We've got a Christmas special on that coming up soon. And our new Book It series. Yes, we've just had match number three just passed there with Jack and Ross. It should be a good one. And, you know, we'll find out over the next few weeks who's going to win that fantasy booking tournament. It's a lot of good fun. Uh, now, before we get into the topic, we should introduce the panel. And as I mentioned, our topic wrestler for this evening is very well known for his career in New Japan Pro Wrestling. So, of course, we had to bring on our New Japan experts, not David Campbell and Gary Kernan. No, it's the hosts of East Meets West. It's Scott McLeod and Grant McRobbie, guys. How are you? Pleasure to be here, Stephen. Absolutely buzzing to cover one of the absolute legends of New Japan. Same. I'm really looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. And that's not all this evening yet. We're talking about the King of Strong Style, but we've also got the King of Strack Style. It is Strack himself. Strack, how you doing? <laughs> not too bad. I'm, doing, I'm quite actually perplexed. What's Strack Style? I don't know, man. I just, is I, it I, general I opinion or is it general? Uh, Swear to Andy Mitchell, <laughs> just have to shout him. <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of. It's just, it's just a new form of strong style, you know. It's like it's View Park strong style. So take that what you need, what you will. <laughs> I'll give you a DDT and call you a dick at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for any of our non-Scottish listeners, View Park is a very interesting place that Strack is from, and I live in currently. So ah. <laughs> <laughs> what's said about that, the better. But enough I'll give about you me. Ten pound if you survive a year. Ah, you're on. Uh, but enough about me. Uh, let's go on and talk about Shinsuke Nakamura, whose uh, career spans all the way back to 2002, when he debuted as a 22-year-old. Uh, Grant, I will come to you in the initial one on this one. Uh, 
when Shinsuke Nakamura debuted in New Japan re- Pro Wrestling back then, he was referred to as the Super Rookie. Now, generally, when you put Super in front of anything, it seems to imply that he's going to be very above all the other forms of that word, you know. So, obviously, Superman's meant to be better than a normal man. So, it just shows what confidence they had in this you know, 22-year-old that they would put that pressure on him initially with that nickname. Aye, I mean, when you look at this, sort of like it was a super rookie, and when you look at kind of the other two big rookies at the time who were dubbed the three, the, the new three musketeers, it was him, Tanahashi, and Katsuyori Shibata. Nakamura made a hell of an outstanding like name for himself with his abilities and also the fact that he dabbled in MMA as well. It was lethal in all fronts. Well, we know about his striking ability, you know, so I think that's kind of... You tend to find anybody with a form of striking ability seems to have some sort of MMA background, you know? Aye, aye, that's it. His, his striking is like probably what most people will be familiar with him for, um, but let's not sell him short, his speed and his technical ability is something special as well, which he's shown over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott, Grant mentioned, obviously, the the three musketeers, or you musketeers, as they were known at that back then. Quite a threesome, you know, those three. I wonder what happened to the other two. You know, they seem to be floated away up to obscurity. Yeah, and it's the fact they were the new musketeers, because the original three musketeers were three of the legends of, of New Japan. They kind of ruled, like, through the 90s. And the idea, usually in wrestling, just when you put new in front of something, it usually doesn't work out. But I think this is one of the rare exceptions. There's all three guys accomplished a lot in their careers, you know, in, in various respects. And yeah, again, the idea of super rookie, I think especially out of those three, it seems that Nakamura was the one they had their eyes on, especially given that what he would accomplish, I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, so early on, it shows that out of those three, he was the one they first looked at as a potential like star of the company. Yeah, I mean, the big thing Scott kind of alluded to there is he, uh, on December 9th, 2003, he won the IWGP Heavyweight Championship at the age of 23. Now, Strack, obviously, you're more familiar with the later stages of Shinsuke Nakamura's careers, which we'll obviously touch upon later on the show, but just from hearing that, as a, he was a champion in a major promotion at the age of 23. WWE, I've talked, you talked about around about the same time with Randy Orton and Brock Lesnar winning it around about the age of 24, 25, but Nakamura was that one year younger at 23, which just shows the faith that they had in him, you know, so soon in his career. I, I mean, obviously, the point of view I can get for you is obviously the wrestling point of view backstage, and the faith to put your world title on a twenty-three-year-old guy who he's, he's coming up and he's he's got a lot of prospects, but it's still a big gamble, and to have the faith in him that this guy will take this and he'll, he'll run with it, it just showed the company had so much respect for him and so much faith to put. Let's face it, the New Japan title is really prestigious. It's not a title they fling about lightly. Mm. Like the WWE World Heavyweight title. <laughs> I don't know. The WWE titles get some form of prestige depending on what period of time you look into it at, you know? No, Maybe WWE not. title, aye, but the World Heavyweight title then. The big gold oh, their version of the world. Oh, the world. Te- oh, the, their version of the aye, world. Aye. Anyway, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, they put that in Jack Swagger. That shows how much they cared about that. The great Cali. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> never forget. Scottish soldier shuddered. 
I do wonder, because the worst part about that thing for Scott is, you know, Batista was the champ. He was feuding with Kane, then Batista got injured. And instead of just putting it on Kane, they put it on Kelly. Kane was just the like out the <laughs> Kane just disappeared. <laughs> Never to be heard from again in this feud. You know, he kind of had other stuff going on. But uh, Scott, I will go back to you because obviously the early part of Nakamura's career, obviously, there was. I'm not too much familiar with it, but there's a lot of good parts about it that's easy to kind of touch upon in this kind of spell between 2003, 2007 time. One of the big things, which would be a major thing for him from a Western side of the, the world, is in January 4th, 2006, he took on a man known as Brock Lesnar, who had, Brock had actually took the IWGP title at that particular point in time, which... For anybody familiar with wrestling history, was a bit of a contentious moment, uh, considering the fact uh, why Brock left WWE in two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read uh, Brock Lesnar's like autobiography, and he, he talks very little about his time in New Japan. He just from the looks of the book, he kind of looked at it as a job. He wanted to wrestle somewhere else outside of WWE when his when his uh, football career didn't really work out. So he wasn't really taking it pretty seriously. It was just another like job to him which I think a lot of people look at when they see Brock Lesnar and how he approaches wrestling. And I think Nakamura, looking back at it, says that as a matter that he didn't really like working with Brock at that time. He didn't think Brock's heart was in it because Brock just came in and won the title very quickly. And like it's weird with Nakamura. I think two of his three reigns happened in this like, short spell. And then shortly after wrestling Brock, he goes on his excursion. And like it's weird, the idea of like, somebody so, still so young not even had his excursion yet to go and get more experience worldwide, which they do a lot of their younger guys, and he's already been put in this main event position multiple times, and it's quite fitting as we talk about the three musketeers. The other three musketeer, uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi, was meant to win his first world title from Brock Lesnar before Brock left and start this whole controversy with multiple different versions of the bell, which eventually would be unified, as we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, Grant, that... Uh... They meant, uh, Scott, what Scott mentioned about the Brock Lesnar Nakamura relationship because let, uh, not Lesnar, Nakamura would actually train with Lesnar at Lesnar's personal gym at one point in time as well while he was on that whole excursion tour, as Scott mentioned. Aye, I mean, and there was apparently there was quite a lot of animosity between them before all that when Lesnar pretty much wasn't willing to go and do the job to Nakamura. Um, you know, and it was a, a, it was a huge contentious issue. It caused a lot of bother, but when it came down to it, you know, they clearly were able to bury the hatchet. Although at the same time, Inoki Simon Inoki, the president of New Japan at the time, did also do a little bit of bullshitting, saying that Nakamura would get loaned out to WWE at that point to gain experience in America. But we all know that that turned out to be a load of shit. Hi, Strat. What Grant mentioned there, we're talking about two thousand and six. You know. If that rumour had been true that they were going to send Nakamura to to WWE to, you know, own his, own his craft, do you think uh, Nakamura at that time would have fit into that period of WWE? <laughs> to me, WWE 2006 was a clusterfuck. I don't think they knew what they were doing. It was like, I, I find enough they had new stars coming up like Batista and Cena and Orton and stuff like that, but at the same time, a lot of it, it just seemed like it was everywhere. It seemed like it was a ship without a rudder, and I think Nakamura would probably just got buried 
to be to be brutally honest, because WWE no no so bad, but they don't 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 really respect outside talent. You're always a you're, if you come from a different country, you've always to wear their like your flag, yes your gear. You've to wear that, and that's all you ever be. And it's I mean look at uh, Takamichinuku, brilliant wrestler. I mean his match against Aguila at WrestleMania 14 was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and he never got anything higher than the light heavyweight title. I mean, I mean Undertaker under talks quite. Undertaker talks quite fondly about working with Takamishinoku in that one tag match that they had in 2001. Uh, sorry, Scott, what were you saying? Uh, I was going to say, like, I think it's fair that he didn't go into the insights because, like, give an example of what Strack said about how they treat like, international talent. 2006 is the same year the Mexico's debut. You've got Psychosis, super crazy, you know, these, like, uh, standouts from, like, cruiserweight wrestling coming up, driving out on a lawnmower. So we got to think, what the hell would they going to get? They had, like, Drew McIntyre, show up and he's killed the Paul Berto as a pirate what the hell would they have given Nakamura in 2006 did they don't uh, have um, Ray Dupree and that was just before like, this Sylvain Grognier uh, Lab Resistance you know aye that is well that's shit <laughs> I learned the other day this is amazing from what I've read you know uh, Sylvain Grognier had had a uh, what's it called um Power of attorney for Pat Patterson. Right. Like the turn off the machine. Uh, no, 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 uh, he, no, power of attorney. I essentially that not, power, not turn off the machine. What, what's that? Go, what's that go today with Nakamura? Come on. I don't know. Strike was talking about Sylvain Gonier. I thought I would add that in there. I don't know. It's, it's just a random fact I seen. Uh, right, we'll go back to Nakamura. Anyway, anyway back to Nakamura. <laughs> but anyway, back to the Nakamura. He would take. He would come back from his excursion, and that's kind of where he would become known as the ace. You know, many people would actually, you know, they, they refer to a lot of Tanahashi as the ace these days. But before him, it was his fellow musketeer who was the ace at this point in time. Aye, when he came back, he joined Masahiro Chono's Black New Japan faction, and they had that whole kind of whole story of Chono becoming the president, Nakamura's ace, and Nakamura had really. He'd gained a lot, he built himself up in that time away. He had a new finisher, the landslide, um, which led to sort of like the start of some of his really entertaining matches against Tanahashi. Um, so there, pretty much any Tanahashi Nakamura match is guaranteed going to blow your mind. And eventually, even going for a shot at the, at the dome against Toshiaki Kawada. I'm just throwing out first, all these names that some people would probably go, like, How do you pronounce that? The first Wrestle Kingdom show that was, wasn't it? It was, yep, because uh, before that it was Tukon Shido Chapter 1. I'm probably getting that pronunciation wrong for once, me. Um, so, yeah, it was the first Wrestle Kingdom branded show. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting one. And, um, I mean, Scott, I mean, you, you, Grant mentioned the Tanahashi stuff there. I mean, how many Wrestle Kingdoms? Like, I've not got the start in front of me, you know. I would ask Hotling, but as a U Japan star, he wouldn't have a scooby what I'm talking about. How many Wrestle Kingdoms do you think that these two would have actually probably faced each other that? Because it would be, be quite a, a fair few. I think at least, I can remember at least two off the top of my head. I think the second ever one, I think, is when they faced off for the title. And mm-hmm. uh, I believe in Wrestle Kingdom 8, they faced off again, but that was for the IC title, but it got moved that was to the main the, event. Yeah, that was the one where they. Nitro and everything. So I think we talked yeah, about that was before. the infamous one, that one with that one good. Uh, 
as you mentioned, that one got degraded, you know, the, mm. the Naito one. Yeah, so they, they were on and off for, for ages. I think in 05 they had a brief run as, as tag champs, so they were kind of a thing where like they came up together, they were partners for, for a bit, and then they'd be rivals. I'm trying to think in WWE senses, you can kind of look at them as an Orton Cena kind of thing, and that they'd always have them compete each other, except I don't think you'd have fans getting as sick of them wrestling as you had fans getting sick of Orton and Cena wrestling. Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, I'm yeah. trying I'm trying to, trying to make a good example. It's the only one I could think of. No, it's a perfect example. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something. And uh, Grant as well, uh, you mentioned the Black U Japan uh, faction that he would came up on in round about 2007 time as well. He would, he'd been injured. He got injured after the G, or during the G1. And he would come back at the end of that year and reform that stable known as Rise. And I look back and some looking back at some of the names that were in that stable. That is stacked, man. Aye. Absolutely unreal, unreal stable. Um, Minoru, Milano Collection AT, Goto, Giant Bernard, also known as to many as well, good old Prince Albert. <laughs> Travis Tomko, Prince Devitt, Loki. You know, it's it's some big names, big hard hitters in there. What a stable. Big, uh, big uh, Matt Bloom, Albert, Tensai, Giant Bernard, whatever the hell you want to call him, A-Train. Uh, he was, he's well revered over there in Japan. He, he, had, he had a great run over there as, as a tag team wrestler. He did, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, fantastic tag matches when he teamed up with Carl Anderson, um, who also had some great matches with Nakamura as well over the years. So it's just, it's it's pretty unreal when you think like how some of these names have kind of met each other over the years and where they all are now. Mm-hmm. It's mental, mental. Uh, Scott, you also mentioned uh, as well about the the championship controversy that kind of happened around about this time when Lesnar had the yeah. belt and the kind of belt would go, uh, and it would end up with uh, what was it, the IG, IGF version of the belt, which would end up in the possession of Kurt Angle, and the point that they would actually unify that and the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. Was when Nak- just after Nakamura had won it at Wrestle Kingdom two, and he faced off with Kurt Angle, and he beat Kurt Angle to unify the belt. Now this was two thousand and eight. Kurt Angle, two at that point he was in TNA and he was an absolute machine. He was probably still one of the be- uh, top five best wrestlers in the world at that point. So Nakamura beating him is a massive deal, especially we look at you Japan in, in two thousand and eight. Probably not the same appeal in the Western audience as they do now. So that's a major deal doing that uh, sort of match. Yeah, I think the main reason that Angle won the belt from Lesnar anyway is because they wanted to get the belt off him. And Angle is one of the few people he would willingly lose to. I think he even willingly tapped out to the ankle lock. And if you're a fan of like 2007, late 2007 TNA, you remember when Kurt was coming out with all the belts in TNA and he'd have that belt. He just referred to it as the IWGP belt because obviously they thought explaining the controversies, the two versions of the belt would probably confused most like casual fans and then they have Nakamura beating a legend like like Kurt Angle and like you said this is well when Kurt Angle's still at his peak which is a shame that we couldn't get a match like this when like they were both in, in WWE in that brief period at the same time because Kurt really wasn't the same guy anywhere but yeah seeing like Nakamura versus Kurt Angle I think so it's one of those times that not a lot of people probably would have seen but I think it's worth like hunting down and looking for it and I think also this led to 
at some point in 2008, Nakamura had one match in TNA, but they put him on Explosion, the B-show against Elite Skipper. It was just a case of like, oh look, here's Nakamura, he's the IWGP champion. You like Skipper, what a name. I saw the video the other day, it was like 15 years or something like that since he uh, balanced on the cage in that amazing six sides of steel match between Triple X and America's Most Wanted. It was amazing. But uh, Grant, when Angle had that IWGP belt, I think that was the first time I ever actually heard of you, Japan, that that one. So it's it's a smart move to get the people... And also put over this guy who they clearly say is their use is their big star Nakamura. Aye, it was absolutely like sort of like for me as well. It's probably like the first time I'd really heard of it back in the day, um, because you know even back then you know it wasn't easy to get a hold of a lot of this Japanese wrestling unless you really knew people that were into it and the whole tape trading scene that could be put back to then. So uh, yeah, I mean like let's face it, everyone in the world pretty much knew who Kurt Angle was. So having him put Nakamura over. That's a huge deal at the time, back in the day, you know, before it was as easy to like look behind the scenes and see what was going on everywhere. Aye, definitely. It was a stellar match, one I would have loved to have, you know, seen currently, but, you know, it's, it is what it is. But, uh, Scott, in 2009, if we look further on in Nakamura's uh, career, he would, uh, he would turn heel and mm. he would form the stable chaos around about this particular time, which if you look at the timeline of U Japan Pro Wrestling, it's an interesting move because I believe that uh, chaos was actually the first ever heel stable that U Japan, well, it was the only U- uh, villainous stable they had at that particular point in time. So, and we know with U Japan now, that is a staple of the product. Yeah, because nowadays it's more considered like a face faction, a lot of the main good guys in there, but a lot of them are still around the, that are founding members that have started out as heels, the likes of your Torianos, Tommy Yorishi, uh, Okada when he came in, uh, you know, Rocky Romero was part of it, and they like, basically they raided the Great Bash Heel faction uh, with quite a few of the members leaving Maccabee and his, his pal Homa, his Homa who never left his side and uh, just they formed this heel faction and then I think this is where you truly got to see, I think all the big matches he'd had and the people you beat like a Kurt Angle. This is when you think Nakamura probably found himself like character-wise, because he'd always had the the skills like wrestling-wise, but I think this is where he developed the King of Strong style character that we know today and everybody was excited to see when it was announced he was coming to WWE. Yeah, Strack Scott mentioned that this is actually, this, as he said, that's the point where Nakamura started doing a rougher style. He started using a lot more knees. He would do a lot of the moves that he's kind of well-known for today. Do you think this probably was a, a good move for him to go with this type of style that we well know him for, uh, to kind of stand out a bit more from the pack, from a lot of the guys we talked about earlier on, the likes of the Tanahashis? See, that's the good thing. I mean, a lot of guys, they, they pick a style and when they first start wrestling and it doesn't really... Like, they watch what they see on telly and they go, oh, why do do that? But they're just no built to do that style of wrestling, and then they go, "Well, switch it and see how it goes." And a lot of them switch, and you look, "Holy shit! That that's that's it." I think that's what happened to Nakamura. It just gave him a pop. It gave him an edge. Plus, for a fan to watch somebody getting like hot by a running knee is brilliant. You love it. Being a wrestler, no, no so much. 
but <laughs> when you when you see somebody who's you know they're gonna strike, they're gonna hit. You're kind of looking forward to the match. You know it's not just going to be a fling about match, and it's going to be boring. There's going to be like kind of like it. You knew the John Moxley match and the Kenny Omega match has just been. They two are going to hit each other. They two are going to fucking stiff each other during this match, which made it more intense. So I think I can make it done. It became more intense because he's more striking, more knees, more elbows, putting a bit more his MMA style in these matches. Mm-hmm. Like, didn't he like early in his this run of like starting using like the strong style? I'm pretty sure he, he caused an injury to turn out, so, like he broke his like orbital bone. Then he's like, and everyone uh, here and that thinking like, why was there not a period when Tanahashi was coming out with an Undertaker like '95 style mask? Just imagine big Tanahashi <laughs> doing his air guitar with that mask on. <sighs> That'd be class stuff. Uh, Grant, I was. Um, when doing my research for the show, I was kind of looking around about this early period of the King of Strong Style character when he was in this kind of villainous mode. I have to bring this up because it's amazing. I did not actually know this. I think in June 2010 at Dominion, it beat Daniel Pewter, <laughs> the guy from Tough Enough. <laughs> I, know. I was like, wait a minute. Daniel Puder, even I'd, I'd completely forgot about that. It's like you look at all these like really prestigious names that he's been involved with. He's been up against the likes of the great Muka. He's drew the ire of Antonio Inoki, who, let's face it, no one wants to get a fucking scud off that boy. Like, the original King of Strong Style. <laughs> like, like, you know, you've got all these different big names out the, outstanding right out amongst them all, and no for the right reasons. Daniel Puder. <laughs> well, was this Daniel before Pud- the Royal Rumble incident? After okay. Royal Rumble, so, I think was in 2004. What well, when he gets really, absolutely so, battered? Aye, so mm-hmm. looked to me, well, this boy could take a hit. Nakamura's <laughs> <laughs> like, beating Kurt Angle. This guy nearly broke Kurt Angle's arm. It's a match made in heaven. <laughs> what I love about that 2004 Rumble incident is you've got like Guerrero and Benoit in there, and then out comes Hardcore Holly just rubbing his hands like <laughs> this, is, this is what I love to do. He looked so happy, it's like he just spotted his cousin. Arthur Holly's heart grew three sizes that day. That's the happiest he's ever been. But, Grant, we've we've mentioned in the first 20-odd minutes, you know, it seems like this early period of time, Nakamura's had so much success very early on. I mean, he'd beaten Kurt Angle, winning the title so young. But it was as the king of strong style that he really became the MVP of this promotion. And I think he has so much great matches in this kind of seven-year period. It's unbelievable just how much stuff he's got in his uh, CV over this period of time. Aye, there's, there is some absolutely incredible matches. Um, to me, one of my favourites uh, was back, uh, what I think it was 2010 G1, and he had... He took on pro wrestling Noah's Go Shiozaki, who was pretty much like his kryptonite, like the one guy that he could not seem to beat. And it was a 30-minute time on the draw. And my God, what a bloody match it is. Absolutely. One of Nakamura's best. Mm-hmm. He, 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 he does like a, a bit of a stiff hit. I think it's fair to say. I mean, you don't get a nickname the King of Strong Style for absolutely no reason. Nathan uh, finger doom here. Absolutely not. Uh, Scott, he also seemed to. I also found interesting that of all the the chaos members, you know, you look at the 
the guys that were in there. Toma Horoishi and him would be an absolute, you know, they would wreck people. But he seemed to quite often uh, team up with our old favourite Yano <laughs> quite a lot when yeah. it came to the likes of the World Tag League. Yeah, it was weird because like, they teamed, he teamed with Yano, I think they were called like Chaos Top Team. And then for a while he teamed in World Tag League, ECS is Chaos Invincible. And then I'm looking at the records and he's thinking especially the ECE and Nakamura partnership. Nowadays, I'd expect them to go right through the field and go on and win the tag belts and hold them for, for ages. But then it's just to show they get the talent they had back then. And again, it, this is definitely a different Yano, not the Yano that me and Grant talk about, uh, the fun time Yano. This is more a sinister version of Yano. He's always cheating, but he was doing it differently back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, Grant, of course, you know, it's a, it's a staple, I think, of many great. You Japan wrestlers that you've got to win the G1 at one point in your time there. And uh, 2011 was Nakamura's year. He won that G1. Seven wins out of nine in his round robin. Defeats Tetsui Naito in the, in the climax for it. Uh, like most G1 winners, he's unsuccessful with his shot at Tanahashi. Again. But, <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you're really right about this John Cena-Randy Orton comparison. <laughs> but, no, I... Uh, a, good, a great win for him in that G1 in 2011, Grip. Uh, going, going through seven, seven of his nine matches with a win and going over Naito, who, if I remember correctly, this was before Naito was doing Los Ingobernables. It was still the, the stardust genius he was going by at that point. And it was uh, it was back at a point, well, it kind of shows Naito got shot on a lot at that point. Every time he was getting somewhere, he got shot on. But fair play to them. Two of them put on some great matches and yeah, it was definitely a sort of a, a point where, yeah, we can say Nakamura's had a lot of success, but this was kind of him going from just successful into his kind of superstar level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was interesting as well, Scott, uh, what I quite like is we mentioned all those early runs as the IWGP heavyweight champion, but he was, seemed to be the guy for a good few years who really cemented the secondary belt in New Japan, their version of the Intercontinental title. He, we've met, you talk about the 90s, 80s type era WWE, the IC title felt like a, just as big a deal to some people as the main belt. But yeah. And Nakamura had that similar effect during this uh, latter of his run in the company. Yeah, he had it like five times, which is only just recently in the last year being tied when Naito uh, won it from Jay White, so He's only one of two people who hold it that many times. And this is one of the times where like, the idea of a, a heavyweight wrestler, a heavyweight champion competitor challenging for the secondary belt isn't a demotion. And in fact, it helps elevate that belt to a, a similar standing. As we said earlier, he ended up main event Wrestle Kingdom defending that belt. And he's, it seemed like most of the footage you get him around this period for him coming to be, all, all the footage is him coming out and that belt is around his shoulders. Especially the white strap version uh, with the red combine with the red jacket that he was always wearing, it always just looked so good, like it was made for him. And like I remember, he's the only person who wins the New Japan Cup and chooses not to go for the heavyweight belt. He chose to get back the, the Intercontinental belt, which he, he eventually did from Tanahashi. So again, that idea of like I don't want the heavyweight belt, I want this belt because this has become my belt. Again, helps elevate recognize that this isn't a secondary belt. This is a belt just as worth going after as the heavyweight belt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2014 New Japan Cup where he 
defeated Bad Luck Fale in the final. That's a clash of styles and a half. That one, they two guys. Oof. Not, not the biggest Bad Luck Fale fan myself, but, you know, just imagine them being quite, being quite a stiff affair. That New Japan Cup 2014 had one of the best Nakamura matches, and that was against Devitt. And it is a phenomenal match. Um, and when you think about competitors around that time as well, like the year before with the IC belt, you had Nakamura and La Sombra, who many people don't realise these days is good old Andrade. Strack, you're hearing some of these matches. They must sound quite great to you on a great platform being given the chance to actually go at it. Well, after this, I'm going to fucking message Grant and go, can you send me a list of them? <laughs> so I can YouTube them. I'd, 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 that's the thing. I, I, you think you dream matches and you hear, oh, this person be great, this person, this person be great. And then you don't realise it's already happened somewhere. It's already... Because you always say, oh, I'd love to see this guy against this guy. And then you go, oh, it's in WWE. It's going to be shit. And then you go, oh, what happened to Japan? And then you watch back and go, why... There's a match we'll talk about that happened in Japan but also happened in WWE. And you go, why is this so different? Why was it amazing here, but yet when they done it here, it was so flat. You just don't, you just don't get it. Yeah, it's, it's a big difference in the type of thing. Sometimes it works in the WWE stuff, sometimes it just falls flat, as we'll talk about in a wee bit. Uh, but uh, Scott, the, there's a series of his matches around about this time and just before he kind of leaves the company that a lot of people really think really highly of is these couple of matches he has with Kota Ibushi and I think many people see this as some of the best matches that the company's ever produced Yeah, because like I think it's available on YouTube uh, the match with Kota Ibushi from West Kingdom 15 no, no, West Kingdom 9 in 2015 uh, and like I think it goes to show how much Ibushi respects uh, respects Nakamura that he uses his like his knee strike as kind of a tribute. He even does the pose before he does it. That was a great match. It was one of the first t- signs that they were going to push Kota Ibushi, and then also he had the match the year later with with AJ. And like there was a match also in the middle of twenty fifteen, the G one final against Tanahashi. I almost brought that up as a potential best match candidate when we did our G one history show because like again it was that was the last time those two ever actually fought. The thing is at the time you never you didn't know that. It was just again two rivals going at it in the the final of the big tournament, and possibly he had a great series of matches with uh, Hiroki Goto as well around this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grant, those uh, that Abushi match that Scott mentioned. I mean, was that the first or the second one, the Wrestle Kingdom one? I know they had one around about August that time. I don't know if it was August the year before or August the year after. I'm trying to remember this myself. This is where my timelines get a wee bit mixed up. Something tells me that was the. Possibly the second one, but it was a match that was pretty much damn perfect. Like there, were, it really was a beautiful. I mean, it, let's face it, Ibushi's not one known to really hold any regard for his own well-being. Seeing as he probably that. practiced bumping on his neck from the age of three months old or something like that, I'm guessing. <laughs> but I know. Well, what, what a match! <laughs> yeah, I spoke to uh, uh, one of the. An active member of the wrestling Twitter fandom, uh, Shane, who hosts the Hot Dogs and Handshakes podcast, which is a podcast that covers the uh, the two thousands indie wrestling scene. And That's a great he, name, <laughs> Hot Dogs and Handshakes. Yeah, it's uh, 
<laughs> he he met he I see, he tweeted the other day saying he was thinking about how perfect the second Kota Bushi uh, match was with Nakamura. And I went out and asked him because we were hosting this show, and he pretty much he said about it. The big thing that stands out to me is at no point does it feel anything is shoehorned in. There's no sense of, well, we have to do this because modern wrestling dictates we do. From start to finish, it flows organically. I'm not one of these people who outwardly hates choreographed spots or complex sequences, but it would have been very easy for these two to throw something like that together. It still would have been great, however, it would have been forgotten about down the line. All the big moments and the little ones too feel earned and they feel fully formed so come across more sincere that was uh, Shane the host of the Hot Dogs and Handshakes podcast and you can find him on Twitter at, Glo- at Global Force Gold where he also has the Wrestle Wipe threads where he pretty much just takes the mick out of all the shite that goes on in wrestling mostly WWE it's quite good fun to read uh, Grant, is that quite podcast. a spot on assessment? that is definitely a spot on assessment and thinking of other matches or one that I feel that I haven't mentioned. I really need to mention it because it, 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 it's an important one. Ring of Honor, New Japan, War of the Worlds, May 17th, 2014, Shinsuke Nakamura versus Kevin Steen. You can get that one on YouTube for free and it is an absolute belter. Back but when, before, before Owens with WWE as well. Incredible match. That was pretty much just before KO left. Yeah. To go and join WWE right before, right before his cl- climax years there. It's not even a long match. It's like 14 minutes. It shows that they can do it. And again, it doesn't feel shoehorned in. It's got high spots. There's even a wee bit of comedy. The knee strikes. Everything. Everything you're looking for in a Nakamura match, it's there. Mm. I was I was probably going to mention that, but if you hadn't mentioned it, because like, <laughs> I started looking at some Sinsuke stuff before, when I was in as he was coming into WWE and one of the promo packages to hype him up was like interviews with people and it was an interview with Kevin, Kevin Owens talking about wrestling him. So I thought, I need to find this match if this happened. And like you said, the fact that it's available for free on YouTube is just like, it's a steal, I think. See, I was the same. I said that. I was like, I've said for years, I'm like, why are we having a feud with Nakamura and Owens? And then when Grant sent one of the links, it was only like a suggested video, Kevin Owens versus, uh, Kevin Steen versus Nakamura. And I'm like, are you shitting me? <laughs> it's already happened. I've I've not had a chance to watch it. It's saved in my playlist, but I'm like, seriously, this has already happened, and nobody's tried to pull the trigger on it again. But, it's there's so much stuff in there. I mean, Strack, the one that you mentioned, we're going to talk about the U Japan version of it now. The AJ Styles match, you know, that's the one that was we'll mention later on the show that they talk. That's the one that they wanted to recreate because. This match the two of them had at Wrestle Kingdom, it's just so well-structured. It's also quite fitting, given it's probably it's one of the both men's last matches in New Japan before they would go to WWE. But see, I mean, that's the thing. It was the two of them last matches, and the two of them still went for it, unlike Brock Lesnar and Goldberg at WrestleMania 20. 20, yeah. They just went, ah, fuck it, we'll take our balls and go home. <laughs> um, these two still still went for it because they've got respect for the company which is very rare these days but I, I watched that and that's because when I started watching NXT I saw a bit of Nakamura well sorry I, I started like Nakamura so I watched some of his Japan stuff and that's the first one I seen was him against AJ because I'm a massive AJ fan and I was like oh <laughs> it's like <laughs> 
it was a brilliant match as you say it's no it didn't seem like it was dragged out or it was like oh, let's just go out and do this it still felt like the guys had a lot of pride to put in mm-hmm. yes it's definitely interesting Scott with Strax says because Nakamura, it wasn't like Nakamura said before, you know a couple of weeks later he was leaving he literally hands his notice in hours after this event finishes he does the match and then by the end of the night he's gone Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like the next night, Kenny Omega challenges him for the belt, but uh, the match never happens, and he eventually turns Ashes steps up, you know, to take his place for the vacant belt. And like the thing with this match is, uh, I looked this up when it was announced AJ and Nakamura were coming, because a lot of people were talking about it. Because obviously, like, then it came like hours after they'd had it. Uh, like when you think of it, this is basically the two big faction leaders of New Japan. Like you've got AJ who's leading Bullet Club at this point. And Nakamura, who's kind of the leader of chaos up until he leaves when Okada takes over, because before then you see like Okada as the heavyweight champion, and Nakamura is usually the IC champ. But it's made clear that Nakamura is the leader because he's the more experienced one. And just you look at this, like this is where you first get to see the the, char- the charisma of Nakamura, like the spot where AJ does like the gun motion, and Nakamura takes an imaginary bullet and then just swallows it, <laughs> and like even comes it with a he comes it with a bloody crown. And a cape as part of his entrance. Like some of Nakamura's Wrestle Kingdom entrances are just unbelievable. Like, pretty sure he matched with Tanashi a couple of years earlier. He had women dancing on poles as part of his entrance because why not? Someday, <laughs> please give me the stat on the Tanahashi Nakamura Wrestle Kingdom. Listeners, <laughs> anybody, please give me this. I'll even look, I might even look up myself after we finish recording because I need to know because it's happened a lot and I would probably never get sick of it. Uh, Grant, they also. Uh, kind of final point on the New Japan stuff in Nakamura's career. Scott kind of briefly mentioned that he was IC champ at the point he was leaving but he vacated the belt when he was going and obviously the the challenger for the belt at that point was going to be Kenny Omega. Could you See, imagine that, the match? That would have been an incredible match and it, it was I love, I love when you look at the differences like of how they wrote out both styles and Nakamura in that same month. Like Nakamura Stayed for his notice. He handed the title on the twenty fifth of January, ending his reign. He wrestled his last match under his New Japan contract on January thirtieth. But for Styles, he was dethroned by Kenny Omega the next night at New Year's Dash, and Styles was not seen for it. Seen for again in New Japan. So it, it's really cool when you see how differently. The, and funny enough, the the two leaders, their next leaders. Had possibly one of the best feuds there's been in wrestling in the last decade when it was Omega and Okada. So it's a hell of a passing of the torch on both sides. Still think Okada's overrated, but. <laughs> what? You're lucky you're in tier three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think he's good, but I just don't think he's brilliant. Ah, uh, no, Stephen Wilson. Kenny Omega's amazing. I'm no ang- I'm no angry. I'm I'm just disappointed. <laughs> I think I think Kenny Omega is great. Sometimes when I say bad things about Kenny Omega, I just don't get a reaction. It's it's great fun. I'm just an evil bastard when it comes to shit like that. Aye, we can you're evil. Me and Jack are still waiting for our bunk beds, but that's a different podcast story altogether. I tell you, they're in the basement. We just have to kind of build them and and you know. well, this recording will be saved for Crime Watch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, um, we'll naturally make the jump now from Japan to WWE and uh, obviously when he hands his notice in it comes out he's, got, he's signed for WWE more, more precisely NXT and 
Strack, we'll come to you in this one, obviously, because you're kind of this was kind of point like me. You're, you probably didn't, you didn't came more aware of Nakamura. At this point, me personally, I'd not really seen too much of him. But when you seen the hype that people were talking about for him coming in, you naturally got that buzz that this guy's something special. Would you kind of have that same idea when you first seen these introduction videos to Nakamura? It was. I was I was focused starting to get into NXT because people were like, oh, oh there's these guys coming here, this guy coming here, this guy's rest. I was like, alright, I, I kind of know who they are. They were quite good. Then I was seeing the matches. I'm like, it's a better calibre. But it was one of the guys I worked with in Virgin Media. I was like, have you ever heard of Shinsuke Nakamura? And I was like, honestly, no. He said, I was New Japan. I says, I only know New Japan for WCW back in the 90s, but it was like Yoshi Thunder Liger, eh... Uh, uh, I guess this kid. Aye, um, Black Tiger, um, Hayabushi. Was that right? Hayabushi uh, was Hayabusa. about there. Hayabushi. Aye, um, the Great Muta. People like that. That's all I knew. And I was like, all right. And he says, no, you need to check this guy out. He comes to NXT. And I was like, all right. Well, I'll, I'll see how this goes. And honestly, I was so the fact that when he comes out. Everybody's singing his theme tune. Oh, I love it. I miss it. I miss it so much. Oh, so the wife was actually sleeping in the fell asleep in the couch, and I was watching a takeover, and she went, "Are they all singing that guy's theme tune?" I was like, "Yes, they are." I was playing it before we recording. It was amazing. Yes, were you saying that, Scott? I miss that theme song. Yeah, I, I get why he changed it when he turned heel, but uh, I remember I had a playlist of like wrestling songs, and that was on it. Just like walking around Tesco, listening to that, trying not to do like the the, the hand movements of like Nakamura while walking down the aisles, so people aren't looking like like what the hell's he all about? Someone kneels down a low shelf to try not to run and kneel in the middle. <laughs> Poor eight-year-old Doris. Doris was just in to get her carrots and peas and went and got a knee to the side of the head. Still an employee's neck, good vibrations. Needless to say, I'm banned for life from that Tesco. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Grant, talking about this match itself, I mean, I felt the buzz about it. Uh, if you're going to bring in a guy like Nakamura... Is there a more perfect opponent at the time in 2016 than Sami Zayn? Uh, the former El Generico, Sami Zayn. That debut match for Nakamura, what a way to make an impression, a first impression. It's probably still to, my, to this day, it's in my top 10. Well, actually, I'd say it's actually my top five takeover matches. It is just outstanding in every way. Mm-hmm. Well, we... Last February on the podcast, you can listen to it on our back catalogue, ranked our favourite NXT TakeOver matches of all time, obviously last February. This came in at that time at number seven on our list at that particular point in time. It was only behind, at that point, the two Bailey-Sasha matches, the Revival DIY match at Toronto, the two at Free Falls, the Gargano-Andrade match, Dunn versus Bate, and the first Gargano Champa match. Uh, Scott, you were on that show. You ranked this as your eighth, eighth favourite match at the time. Mm. I can't really remember why. I think I kept it in the top ten because I think it still does hold up. 
compared to like the matches that came after. And it's weird to think it was February like, last year, and yet there's been quite a few candidates uh, for like in the top to go in the top ten since that show came out. But looking at this, just this, like this was the most perfect like setting to bring him out. I think in terms of NXT, it's one of the best debuts they've ever done. Like Sammy didn't lose anything because like two nights later he was competing at WrestleMania, so it didn't really hurt him to lose to the new guy. And like, and from my recollection, it's probably the the first time I remember hearing a crowd chant "Fight Forever," which has become a staple lately in the scene. But I believe it was like a big deal when they started chanting that at this show. And I thought something about Nakamura coming in, which I think is, will probably be a, a, be a main reason as to why he's different in WWE than Japan. Is I'm pretty sure by the time he debuted in Dallas, he was like 36 years old. Because I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure he's 40 now. Which is weird because like 36, back in the day, if there was a WCW wrestler who was like 36, you'd have guys come out going pros and like, oh, you're so old. What? You're past it. Why are you still here clogging up the main event scene? Whereas NXT had inputs of guys in their late 30s, early 40s, like Bobby Roode, Samoa Joe, Nakamura, AJ Styles. Like, which is just, I think it's a sign of like the change in times. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Strick, this kind of match on this card, it's the take the takeover Dallas card. It's right bang smack in the middle of a card that concludes with Finn Balor Samoa Joe. It's the show that Asuka begins a historic run as the NXT champion. We've also got a very, very good tag team match that opened the show between the Revival and American Alpha. You know, it's not like this is a really good match on a really, really bad card. This is a really strong card and the kind of the fact that this is the match everybody still talks about this match, you know. We know Asuka's got a great had a great run, but Bailey Emdiv talks about our actual match that wins the title because this is the ma- one match on this show that everybody was speaking about for weeks, months afterwards. Right, two points. One, NXT for a long, long time. You looked at a card and you go, "There is no toilet break match in there." You're you're in you're wear an appy or get an empty coke bottle. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. That was the thing about NXT because me, obviously, Sarah, Kwaku, and that we used to do the NXT takeover shows, and they're in our back catalogue as well. Um, we used to say about oh, what, what, what do you think the, the worst match was, and you like, there wasn't one. I can maybe tell you which you least enjoyed, but there was nothing that it was bad. And two, the, the takeover ranked matches, the, the ones you were saying there. Mm-hmm. Top five was not Nakamura versus Joe. One or two. I don't think we even talked about Nakamura versus Joe at any point in time. Right. See me in my office. <laughs> How <laughs> could you not talk about that match? For, for, uh. What uh, What takeover was that? That was Dallas 2, wasn't it? Aye, but there was, there was another Japan one as well. It was Brooklyn 2 Nakamura defeated Joe for the championship and it was uh, Toronto Nakamura lost it and it was Japan that he got it back. Aye, the Japan and Bayern got it back, that's... Because uh, we, we picked one, we essentially picked one match from each takeover card and on that one we all picked the first Revival DIY match. You didn't even pick Balor versus Owens in the ladder match? No, because it was on the same card as Bailey Sasha. <laughs> why? Why was it on this show? Because I just shouted at all you. You picked one. We all picked one match from each card, and then we ranked all those number one matches. And 
Sasha versus Bailey. Sasha versus Bailey was the fourth big. It was fourth on the list, you know. But oh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of something ahead. I can bring your house and hit you with. I'm pretty sure I can lift your core. I'll bring that. I'll use that. Why? Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, but this was the only kind of match Nakamura match would be actually listed at that show because Scott, I don't know how much you re- remember oh, that kind of year on NXT. I mean, I love Nakamura. I think he's amazing. But I kind of think back to his year in NXT, and I kind of a lot of it's a blank to me, other than this first match. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think uh, the appeal quickly like, wore off in the idea of it quickly became a case of like, why does Nakamura need to be in NXT? I think it was a case of like adapted to the more, to a different style and more of the Western way of doing things. And like he had the match with Austin Aries at TakeOver at the end, which I think the match doesn't really get talked about as much as it probably should. Uh We've got he had that match with Finn Balor on episode NXT. Went the whole episode, which earned him the right to face Joe. I honestly don't think they needed to rush him into the title scene, which they've done with quite a few people in NXT during that time. They did it with Drew. They did it with Rude, where uh, he could have just had like at Brooklyn he fights Balor and then wins it for Joe at maybe at Toronto, or or I would have made an argument maybe have him lose to Joe and then go up because like it wouldn't really hurt him that much to lose to someone like Samoa Joe as compared to when he loses to like some bloody gender fucking Mahal. <laughs> and honestly, I actually think two of the most, I don't want to say the most boring, but two of my least favourite TO main events were the two matches with Bobby Roode. Because Roode has a particular very slow style, as a, especially as a heel, very similar to how Triple H would have when he, have, he sits on having these long, bloody matches. And like, I think given the style of TakeOver and what fans expected, it just contrasted with everything else, especially given that by the end of those cards, you'd, you'd seen quite a lot. A good stuff by that point, it really just the both endings felt quite flat, and it wasn't really a good start to Rude's train. It wasn't a good end to Nakamura's time in NXT, and like there was a, there was actually a random match in episode NXT like from March 2017. Like a lot of people probably forgot, but it's Nakamura one of his only matches between the two matches with Rude is him versus TJP, which is a, a random match in NXT, which I think people should go check out. Mm-hmm. Uh- Strike, you were very vocal about me not including Nakamura Joe very highly. I mean, what's your f- opinion on what Scott said about the two matches with Bobby Roode? I actually enjoyed them. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I would say that the, the start of the match is brilliant because both fans are shout, singing both theme tunes, which is even funnier. But no, I, I thought the matches obviously were a slow pace, but at the same time, the end to both matches I thought was really good. Because it was I know people don't like false finishes and stuff like that, but there was one of them. I think it was the second. Rude and Akimura with the the glorious DDT kicked out, and he was like, "What? What did I need to do?" And because he thought, or oh, maybe they're going to get to it. I don't think they're going to get the title to it. Maybe it'll keep on Akimura. Rude said he shot. Maybe he'll just go up Nakamura's day, but then obviously. Rude took it and you're like, oh no, Nakamura's got to the main roster. Shit. Which is my opinion, a lot of the time, I think, like, oh, can't wait to see them on Raw Smackdown. I'm like, no, just ask for your release. I wouldn't go that far, but I would. If, that- I was, if I was in NXT and Triple H said, you're going to Raw on Monday, I'd be like, just sack me. Just fucking release me. 
I'm going to do something to get sacked, so it's up to you. Check out FTR in the corner there. Um, <laughs> Grant, an interesting thing, when you look back on Nakamura's takeover record on that year, he wins the first three ones. He beat. He obviously beats Sami Zayn, he beats Austin Aries, and he beats Samoa Joe. But then he loses the next three ones to Joe and two to Rude. So he ends up with a takeover record of three and three. That's quite astounding given the the star power that he, he's, he had in NXT over that year. Yeah, I mean, you look at the, like the way that like to me, like the three and three, like the loss, the loss to Joe was quite a. Uh, to me, it just. I felt it didn't really make sense taking it off him, but you could tell where that was going when they announced the Japan show. The two to Bobby Roode, I'll be honest, I've never quite been the biggest fan of Bobby Roode before WWE, and uh, WWE's style for him just never really smelled it for me. Banger, banger of a theme tune, going to give him that one. <laughs> but, you know, he just, like, when he always came out of the robes and that, to me, I was just like, so is this just like another Ric Flair impersonator? <laughs> I, I just felt that Nakamura, they could have giving them more star power in NXT. And I mean, at the end of the day, like, putting them to NXT, the man can main event the Tokyo Dome. So, you know, it's, it's not like he's not used to working in front of big crowds. Definitely not. But as kind of Scott alluded to, I think he was only really there to kind of just get custom with the Western style. And it was one year later that he would get the main roster call up mm. after WrestleMania 33 and would end up on SmackDown where, Scott, I will throw back to you on this one, that, Initially, after teasing that he was first going to have a feud with The Miz, he actually ends up getting stuck in what our own Gary Kernahan has referred to many times, the curse of Dolph Ziggler. Because <laughs> it seems to be a thing that Gary actually pointed out very well that a lot of guys come up from NXT and get lamped with Dolph Ziggler to very different effects. Drew, he's came out okay, but you look at the likes of Tyler Breeze, and it's just not a good fit to be stuck with Zolf Ziggler to start with. Yeah, I, I did like the, the feud going into it because like, it didn't make much sense. It was just every week, Ziggler comes out basically says, oh, you're new here, and I'm going to expose you as a like, you, you can't hang here, and all that. As if he hasn't just spent a last, he hasn't just come off an NXT title reign. And like they also kept calling him a rock star or an artist with no reasons to why he's being referred to as this. And like Nakamura wasn't even saying anything in response to what Ziggler was saying. And I remember me and, and Ross went to a live event uh, a couple weeks before Backlash, and they had Nakamura v Ziggler on the card. And I was actually looking forward to because I thought as a match it'll be probably quite good because Ziggler is a really good worker. And I thought as a first match it'll be great for for Nakamura. And I remember watching the match at the live event, looking like this isn't as good as I thought it would be. But then I put it down as like, ah, oh, they're working live events. I'll get the kinks. It'll be better at Backlash. And then it was pretty much the same style of match uh Backlash, where I think a lot of people were hoping for, like, Zero gets some spots in, but it's a mostly, like, to showcase how great Nakamura is. But it's a case of, like, they wanted it to be very 50-50, and it, it made it really... Because I think that was one of the matches a lot of people were actually looking forward to in that show, and it kind of very much underwhelmed, which has to become a theme of Nakamura's year. Yeah, uh, Strack, I think... When I look back watching this early part of Nakamura's main roster run, to me it screams out that this is a guy that they they seem to know that he's got a fanfare about him, seem to know that he's, people think of him as a big deal, and they're kind of torn between 
sticking them straight in there and taking the momentum on it or doing the slow ease. And I think for the first few months, it just seems to be a case of we need we want to, we want to put them up there, but we don't really know how to. Yeah, I'm mere something the, the Dolph Ziggler thing. I'm sitting here, the beautiful mind going, "Oh, he tagged her. <gasps> He's right." Oh <laughs> 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 uh, fuck! So he did. Oh, he tagged her. Oh, Jesus! You need to look back on it. It's actually so, so well. It's so true. It's unreal. But I think it's it's kind of the curse of the creative and like the main roster. They give this guy who the people who are in probably creative have no seen Nakamura in Japan. They don't know what he can do. They don't know how big the guy is. They do, they're like, ah, we, we don't know what to do with this guy. We've not got a clue. And then they're just like, oh, well, we'll give him to Ziggler and we'll, we'll have a thing with him and uh, we can give him to this guy and see, see what he does. And you're like, you realise you could put this guy against the top of the, the, top of the food chain and he's going to knock out the fucking ballpark. You know the problem with the first couple of months? They did that thing with Ziggler. Obviously, Scott said, didn't they work? They then they put him in the money in the bank. Everybody thought he was going to win the money in the bank. And then the money in the bank was just to lead to a short feud to be Baron Bloody Corbin. I was like, who was the other person? And I was like, is it? oh, it's Barry Corbin. <laughs> Big Barry Corbin. Aye. It's like, it's a case of like, a lot of people like Barry Corbin's heel work, but usually when you see a, such and such a feud with Corbin, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> I've said before about Baron Corbin like I think he's one of the best heels in wrestling he's got one of the best team songs one of the best finishers I think if his if his feuds didn't go on for way longer than they need to with little reason he'd be one of the, he'd, he wouldn't be looked at so negatively it's just the fact that he has a feud with somebody and as soon as it starts like well that's that person for the next six months I know it's been 84 years Remember Wilson had done the, the rebook, the re the rebrand, eh, Baron Corbin? I said, we've done this, we've done this, and gave him this person and this person. He could probably take off with some form of faction behind him, but he's still, well, shave his head and make him King Corbin. And seen him come out with that wee Diddy crown, Nakamura should have brought out his one. <laughs> Call that a crown? This is a crown. He's, he's got a stable now, Strack. He's got the Forgotten Sons with him. <laughs> Who? I remember them? Because <laughs> I'm on the most recent SmackDown. You need, uh, but uh, Grant. Spoiler one alert. thing is, what's that? Sorry. Spoiler alert. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I mean, Grant. One other thing is, they did give him. They thought this guy's got momentum. We we'll push him early on. I mean, he gets a win in the middle of 2017 on an episode of SmackDown against John Bloody Cena. And you think, great, he's going to get pushed to the absolute moon. Then comes SummerSlam. And <laughs> he jobs to beckon... I'm going to do my Hockney here. Fucking Jinder Mahal. <laughs> the moment, the moment Hockney listened this podcast until he, he's been waiting for this moment to hear shit on Jinder. This is a part, all part of a great prophecy, all right? And people can go on about Jinder Mahal, like, you know... People having the job to Jinder Mahal. Look, Jinder Mahal's been WWE champion. Drew's been WWE champion. Guess what, motherfuckers? The guy that, that Wilson looks like a shit version of, Heath Slayer, he's going to become a WWE champion in the future. <laughs> <laughs> the prophecy will come true. <laughs> but, oh, God, yeah. Like, like, like Nakamura, like, like the, the, the matches with Jinder Mahal, if I could take wire wool to my own brain and scrub out my memory, I fucking would. <laughs> It's, I remember sitting there 
I think I went to Gary's to watch it. And I'm sit- you're sitting there going, they're going to put the belt on him. It's going to be absolutely amazing. This is finally going to end Jinder's reign and Jinder beats him. And then he gets another shot at Hell in a Cell and Jinder beats him again. It's like, they're actually sticking with this Jinder thing. And I think in between the two matches, or maybe just before the first match, uh, Barry Corbin is the unsuccessful cash-in on Jinder as well. It's like, you're really concerned about this gender push just to, but you're, you know, quelling your guy who, you know he's a big deal because you gave him a nice, decent debut on SmackDown and then you have him feud with Corbin and then lo- and job twice to Mahal. Uh, you're going to need a lot of effort to kind of bring him back. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to put him in the Survivor Series 5 on 5. Oh, he's going to be the... He's going to be the first man eliminated. Oh, that's a great way to propel him. What are we going to do? That's good. Here's an idea, guys. On the next pay-per-view, we'll have a team up with Randy Orton. <laughs> and he's going to lose again. I did, actually. <laughs> the cute Owen Sammy Zayn. Two of Terry Long's favourite ideas, going one-on-one with Randy Orton and being in a tag team match player. Yeah, but it's, it's okay. Cool. Because we're going to launch this revolutionary... Facebook tournament, the mix match challenge is going to be great. We're going to team them with somebody who will be teaming them with Natalia. <laughs> who are we going to put them with in the first? Who are we going to put them with in the first round? Uh, Finn Balor and Sasha Banks. Like for the love of God, man. See, see look at, looking back at that, like Nakamura's the whole the artist thing. He, him, and Sasha would have been a better tag team. And he mm-hmm. should have put Balor with Bailey. I think. Oh my God. The boss and demon connection. <laughs> no, that's the bot. The Sasha's the boss. <laughs> the hug and demon the, connection. Uh, the demon and hug connection. That'd be something. Oh god! But um, it's amazing that after all that stuff I've just said, Strack, we go into the Royal Rumble season, and he's still considered a big favourite for that Rumble. I mean, looking back at it now, it's like. This was never going to work out him winning the Rumble. This was just because of your fanfare. I mean, th- what? Sorry, I just totally had a fucking blank out there. Do you know what? <laughs> Pastor Mahid, I'm like, why do we think Wilson looks like every ginger in wrestling? Eve Slater, Sheamus, Orange Cassidy. Sammy because he's like, he's, he's, he's like the bastard love child of them all, but made an Aldi. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> we're just colourblind. Um... <laughs> Uh, what rumble was that? Sorry, two thousand eighteen. That was the was that the one he won at I? That was the one he won at I. I I mean, him in the last he he haven't remember the last two, didn't he? Aye, yes. I was I, I, right, I, I, I don't do this right. I, I know wrestling's fake and it was just the shit. But see, when Roman and him were the last two, I was standing in the middle of the fucking living room, as if <laughs> please fucking please God. Do not let Roman win this. Let what Nakamura and see when Nakamura won it. I almost wet myself because I thought, here we go. Surely, to fuck the guy's going to be a Royal Rumble winner, and he, they're they're going to put the belt on him. And then the champion at the time was AJ, and I was like, oh, fucking perfect, perfect. <sighs> no. <laughs> It is something at that time that, like, if it said something about the faith we had in that after losing a gender and everything else, that we still wanted him to win the Rumble. It was a great, 
champion. It was a great rumble as well. It was really, really a good rumble. I think the kind of the closing point of it, where it was him, Bala, and Roman, and at the other side it was Cena, Orton, Ray. That was just that, that was uh, great. I was like, I was like struck as well. I was in the middle of my living room, sweating buckets. Like, oh god, he's got a. I was about to say, didn't tell me you're going to piss yourself, eh? <laughs> I just wanted to win. I was so like, come on. Are, are, it, are, we, are, we, are we aiming to get a sponsorship for Tenor Man here? Is that what we're going for? <laughs> That's why I don't see him winning because we had that AJ match. <laughs> that Rumble match, I think, was I think a lot of people agreed it was the best like Rumble match in quite a long time. And like I remember, the, my favorite moment isn't just him winning it, but you know, me, Ross, and a couple of Ross's mates were sitting watching, it, and one of them was a hadn't really watched wrestling in a while, but he kept throwing it random. He's like, oh, I bet this person's going to come in. And at one point, he goes, "I bet you the Hurricane's the next person." Next Andrew comes it, Stan Beck. That's the year the Hurricane actually came back, and we actually went, "Oh, the Hurricane." I think that's the same rumble. I think that's the same rumble I was watching with Laura, and I said, "Who's coming out next?" And she went, "It's gonna be that gold guy." And I was like, "Shut up!" And then Goldust comes out. We <laughs> <laughs> talked about how they treat like international talent, and yet it felt for that one night that we done something right because Shinsuke won the men's rumble and Asuka won the women's rumble. It felt like for that one night the right choices actually happened. Mm. Now. Um... Grant, I'm going to come to you in this one. Uh, we talked earlier on about the the Wrestle Kingdom match with AJ Styles, and obviously, we've now got, we get this leads to the big match for him, WrestleMania, it, him AJ Styles for the title. It's great. Now, I rewatched this earlier today, and watching it, it's the first time I've watched it in two years because I was that disappointed in the match at WrestleMania. I was like, when you watch it without that expectation, it's not a bad match, but I think one. They oversell the build-up of this dream match type thing. And the other issue, too, was Nakamura lost. And then there was three, the really badly done heel turn in the end of the day. But it just, there was every every part of it at the time just did not work. Aye, this was a match which, on paper, we've had this match happen before. And it has been absolute tear the roof off, bring the house down, match of the night by a country mile. And the two guys are more than capable of it. But... We need to remember this isn't Japan. It's not done the Japan, the Japan style. It's a completely different way of doing it. And yet the match was a victim of being overhyped. And yeah, sometimes you get matches which do live up to the hype. Your Omega Okada series, for example, where they just keep getting ridiculously good. But this one, it is, it's like when you look back at it without the expectation, it's not by any means a bad match, but it doesn't have the same urgency or hard hitting, which the two of them were kind of famous for back in Japan. I don't think it ever gets out of... It doesn't get out of third gear. I don't think... You never feel at any point that there's that kind of... You know the way the big matches at WrestleMania, you kind of want them to hit like the crescendo, you know, that kind of point where it just builds and builds. I think it gets to a point like midway through the match and stays at a level. Granted, the it's finishing it, sequence is amazing. It's exactly the same way that I felt about like the Women's War Games match this year where it was a, a good match, but it never kicked out of third gear. It just went to a certain point and just kind of stayed there. Didn't make it bad, but it just meant it didn't live up to the hype. I don't think this was helped either because this was the match with the big expectation. But I remember rightly that WrestleMania's first hour and hour, hour two hours was really, really above what it should have been. I mean, we had Charlotte and Asuka that match, the triple threat for the IC title. Ronda overperformed on her debut compared to anybody. It started off great and then it was starting to go downhill. I'm trying to actually remember where these two get lamped on the card because that obviously makes a big difference. Um, 
I think this is a time we remember, like, where WrestleMania's were starting to become a slaw because they were trying to cram so much in. I think they were, like, right in the middle. And They're right in the middle, and, oh, my God, they had to follow Nia Jackson, Alexa Bliss. <laughs> like, you, you, look at all, you look at all the matches, I mean, yeah, like... Like I know, like people complain about the length of like how long WrestleMania was getting, but I was used to watching Wrestle Kingdoms, which were on average five or six hours. The difference was the quality of the matches and the length of the matches. I mean, that was a fourteen match card. Fourteen match card. They had um, the first four matches take out the fatal four way for the US title were really good, and then they had the tag title match, which was uh, the Cena Taker stuff was a moment, not a match. The Daniel Bryan return. Hey, hey, really... Didn't you dare say that was that wasn't a match, right? Two minutes forty five seconds is about five Yano matches, right? So I'm not hearing that. Uh, the Daniel Bryan Shane McMahon, the Daniel Bryan return tag match. They didn't book that right because they had Bryan out the match for far too long. Nia Jax Alexa Bliss. We've talked about that in the past shows. It's just bad, and then they to come in here, and then you know it goes downhill. I mean, Strack, what's your thoughts? Well, do you remember the photo I sent you after the, that match? I can't, no. Sorry. I turned my telly off, I went to bed in a huff. <laughs> oh, you, you, missed the debut of, you missed the debut of Nicholas? Oh no, I watched that and I went, I'm done with this shit. Because um, I think the, obviously the main event was Reigns against Lesnar, wasn't it? Yeah. It I went, I'm out, good. I'm done, fuck this. And I sat, no. A child, the Nakamura AJ match was boring. And now a child has won the tag titles from two of the most dominant guys in the tag division in the last couple of years. I'm, nah, fuck this. I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> I, I even thought, see at the end of the match, see if Seamus Bro kicked the wee boy. I'd maybe have stayed paying attention. <laughs> but I thought, of, no, I'm done. Your chance of Bro kicking the boy's da. Who's <laughs> the ref? John Cohen, I think the re- his da is, I'm sure. See, the referee. It's just... No, I I get the wrestling to be entertaining, but at the same time, if I was Seamus and Cesaro and they went, we're going to have you lose to Braun Strowman and a random child from the audience, I'd be looking at that. You fucking what? Are you high? I think that was that was like like Styles and Nakamura was the second longest match in that whole whole card at twenty minutes twenty seconds. Yeah, that's all, they, that's all they got. Yeah, they open the show. It was after that match as well. The AJ Nakamura feud. All you remember for it is just kicking each other in the balls. Oh, the feud. Feud. The feud is bad. (laughs) And then you remember for it is a Rochambeau contest. Aye. Do you want to play Rochambeau? I'll kick you in the balls first, then you go second if you're still standing. Yeah, (laughs) that's all it was. The feud is bad. The feud is so bad. I mean, you look. You look now. I mean, from that moment of WrestleMania to now, I mean, it's been two and a half years, and. See, looking at my research, Nakamura has done a lot in that two-year period in terms of winning titles and all that type of stuff. He's done a lot for someone who I have very, very little recollection of anything that he's done in that two and a half years. I mean, he's like, oh, he's been US champion twice. He's won the IC title and he's been tag champion. The only thing he's not won is won the world title. He's like, I barely remember him being there. That's the one title you should have already won by now. When you actually think about it, because like, and if you're gonna, like, yeah, the thing, fair enough, you don't want to be AJ, but like, he shouldn't have been in the gender feud if he wasn't gonna win the belt. 
and the thing with that match at WrestleMania, I think, is that, like you said, it didn't get out a second gear, like, go along this one pace, and then it starts picks up with that fight, you're like, oh, it's getting there, it's getting there, it's getting there, and it's over. Ah. And you feel a bit, kind of short change from what you thought it was going to be. No, I kind of liked it at first when Nakamura did the whole no-speak English, because, like, it was the case of, like, I don't want to answer any more of your questions, Renee, so I'm going to pretend, like, I can't understand you. It's like, then the next week was, like, since he, I clearly heard you speak English, goes, yes, but then I forgot it again. <laughs> you actually see, see some character, but then, yeah, the few didn't pick up that much, then eventually ended in a... The last man standing match at Money the Bank was decent, I think. I mean, he has a very... Um, it's an entertaining short feud with Truth. <laughs> it's really good for that. See that one segment, the backstage segment with him, Truth, and... Uh, it's Sean Spears, Ty Dillinger. And he goes, I'm going to get a shot at you like I got a shot at everybody else. I'm going to pin Carmella. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Because Nakamura just kind of no-sales. I'm just like... He, him, with the, like, him with the US belt and the IC belt, like, he could have done, like like I said, what he did with the IC belt in New Japan where like, he raises up the secondary belt like status-wise. And yet, for some reason, I just like, okay, he's a US champion. And he's going to be off TV for ages. <laughs> And then pop up in like the Crown Jewel pre show to fight Rusev. And uh, then we win the IC belt for, uh, for Balor at Extreme Rules on the pre show again. And then like they tease a match between him and Ali for SummerSlam and then just said, yeah, we're not going to do that. We've got enough on that card. And then they have him wrestle at Smackville, that weird like network live event special that they did. See, see they really actually missed a trick. With the, um, the Intercontinental one by the fact that they could have made a big deal at the fact that he was only the second person ever after Chris Jericho to hold both the Intercontinental belts in Japan and WWE. They missed an that opportunity. Would, that would involve them talking, uh, mentioning Chris Jericho's name on TV in 2019. <laughs> Did they know it. win the US title as well for just low run up and low blow Jeff Hardy? Yeah, yeah. I, no, I think um, Randy Orton got involved. Randy Orton attacked Jeff. As well, I'm sure. Was that the yeah, rematch I'm thinking? Yes, the rematch I'm thinking. He's right, I'm hopping the balls, and that was that. And I'm like, is this Nakamura style now? King of Boston. Yeah, yes, he was, he was the King of Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was it? He, he wins the he wins the US title, and then he, he loses the US title. To, he, he has. I don't know what you guys think. His match with Rollins at that Zero Survivor Series is decent. It's actually no quite bad. a decent match. It's a decent it's match. No the two of them could do better, but it's a decent match, you know. Uh, he loses the US title to Rusev, and then he beats Rusev at the, the Rumble. And uh, he gets eliminated from the Rumble. He comes in further in the Rumble, and he gets kind of eliminated in very, very blasé fashion. Uh, him and Rusev then become a tag team, and they're in the, one of the two fatal four-way tag matches at WrestleMania. He's in the Battle Royal at Super Showdown. He disappears and then he wins the IC title from Bala. Uh, he has that IC title for a while. He has that for pretty much half the... He has that for about six months. Because he had a fantastic Survivor Series match with him, uh, Roderick Strong and Styles. I enjoyed that one a lot. Oh, I, I remember that. Uh, yeah, not, one, not one of us predicted Strong to win it, did they? Like, nobody thought Strong was winning that one. And then he did. <laughs> Then he did, you know the Roger, did you know Roderick Strong's mum shot his dad? Just in case you never knew that. It's a fact I like to remind us. I remember his making a murderer vignette, yes. 
<laughs> well, this took a fucking dark turn. Is that why they put? Is that why they put him in a feud with Dexter Lewis? Uh, so Nakamura lose, he loses the title on the thirty first of January to Strowman after two hundred and one days. Then he's obviously in the background with Sami Zayn for Sami Zayn's feuds for the title. Then he gets put when he gets put with Cesaro, and that kind of the tag team there kind of started very very brightly. Scott, you obviously thought so. You put them as your uh, oh. your tag team in last season's draft, <laughs> and they did absolutely hee right, They only got on Clash of Champions because all the belts had to be on the line, so they got a, a win over the Legend House Party. And then just well, the new day are back. Oh, we're going to beat you for these belts. But then we're going to be drafted to Russell. We're going to just casually hand these belts that you guys have been holding for the last few months over to Street Profits and not give you a rematch for them. And it's like that whole artist collective, which is, by the way, has to go down one of the shittest names for a heel faction ever because it makes no sense. Uh, you got Sammy, Cesaro, and Nakamura in a trio, which is not nowhere near as good as it. As it sounds on paper, like the way they presented them, because like Sammy's just this heel manager where he's too lucky to barely get a chance to do anything. Because uh, it just frustrates me how these three have been booked as a group. It frustrates me how they booked Nakamura for something. We've just glossed over two two years of his career in five minutes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not awful. even like yeah, uh, one where he lost the US belt. Like, after two, he wins it back for Rusev at the Rumble. Two days later, lose it to Truth, and at first it was good. We were like, "Oh, Truth won a belt. That's good." Because like this is the time everybody started to recognise that Truth was actually entertaining again. And then you realise like, "Wait, Nakamura just lost it. Our Truth. Something is not right about this." Nakamura Rusev sounds good on paper, but it just was absolutely pish. <laughs> I mean, you're a, you're foreign. You're foreign. Form a tag team. That was Vince's orders. I mean, there's still potential for Nakamura. I think in WWE to the extent. I mean, he's on SmackDown, which is the best, better of the two main roster shows. So there's something there for him. I mean, Daniel Bryan's booking that content. He's got to find a bloody place for for Shinsuke Nakamura. You do Bloody better. Can you talk about Brock earlier on? You talked about Brock earlier on. Like everybody wanted to see Brock be Shinsuke in, in WWE. And then like this past year of uh, Rumble when he was still IC champ. He was one of the many victims of, of Brock Lesnar in the first half of that rumble. Oh, that's what he was. That feels like that feels like so long ago. I came in at number. He came in at number eleven. Uh, that was quite late on in uh, Brock's destruction. I'm sure. Right. This, uh, but Strack, you mentioned you've got no faith that they'll do anything with Nakamura. But there's a lot of things that say that Nakamura. He's in WWE because he's, he doesn't want it. the physical style of you Japan has took its toll on him. And WWE is a more relaxed type of style, but obviously there's a new party in town with AEW. I mean, if he's re- if they don't use him well there, do you see him kind of being that type of guy that just kind of finishes out his career in WWE regardless, or could he see him make an ambitious push to AEW if he, if he doesn't get booked right? <clears throat> right, there's reality versus hope. Reality, he probably will. He'll probably just run out his time in WWE, get a decent pay packet, and just go home. And probably retire it. Maybe they special blitz appearances here and there at like Japan or something. Hope if he to just go, I'm not enjoying this. They've got nothing for me. I, I they don't know what they're doing with me. AEW looks quite entertaining. I think Nakamura he knows Kenny, didn't he? 
Uh, yeah, the, from you from Japan, I'm sure. I. But I mean, the the taco in terms, I'm sure. Grant, you're probably a better place to, t- to answer that than me. I'll be honest, I'm not actually, I'm not actually entirely sure. Um, but you know, at the end, they like you know Kenny and the likes of Cody and that. If they could see a place for Nakamura, then I wouldn't be surprised if they made a a, a go for him if they had the opportunity. Well, Nakamura, he knows T Hawk and Seema, didn't he? I bet you didn't really see them getting involved with AEW anymore, no, for a long time. No, since the pandemic. If maybe somebody say to him, listen, it's a bit more, it is more relaxed there here, it's not as much house schedules, and so obviously watching being the elite, it looks more fun. But why don't you, you give this a chance? And obviously, if you don't like it, then you could just retire. I mean, the matches you could have Nakamura and, and AEW, obviously against Kenny, would be good. I think. Nakamura versus Brian Cage could be shit hot. Um, Nakamura vs Pack. Nakamura vs Pack. You've got Nakamura versus Jericho. You've, you've that got, that'd be a good one. Nakamura vs Pentagon. I mean, you've got so many possibilities, and it could be really. I mean, look at look at Miro. Look at Rusev. The guy is. Did you, did you see the clothesline of uh, uh, Orange Cassidy way? Aye. He aye, almost leaped the top fucking rope without touching it. This guy he almost leaped it, fucking beheaded Orange Cassidy, and, and then back at the... And you're like, ah, this guy looked like he couldn't even move in WWE. He looked like he just couldn't give a fuck. And now the guy looks like he's having... He looks, he looks like a different person. Obviously, he's dyed hair blonde, but... Yeah, he looks like he's enjoying wrestling again, and that's maybe I think when I come out, I, I don't know if he, I don't know how the guy feels, but he maybe be like, because to be fair, to be a wrestler, I getting paid is good, having good money, I. But at the same time, you want to go and have fun. You don't want to go, oh fuck, work again. You want to go out and enjoy yourself. Yeah. Like- then you mentioned that Orange Cassidy being a human is something I would pay good money to see. That would be fucking hilarious. Just to sell alone. Just to say something. I'd take him with anybody, you know. It'd be great. There's, probably, there's still good feuds for him in WWE as well. It's just how they book it, you know. But AEW's a lot of potential there too. But he's had a I mixed... The, I think the problem is people plan his matches for him. That's quite a, a big problem with WWE. They don't trust the guys to go out and plan their own matches. It's the same. It's the same thing we talk about all the time in WWE. I mean, when Vince eventually, you know, releases the power, which probably will be when the time comes dies. and passes away, uh, dies, dies. <laughs> to be brutal, you know, it'll be. Butler, I think it'll be. That, I think it'll be different then. But the big question is, when will that day? When will the day come? It gets a bit better, but we'll see. But for Nakamura, it could go either way. But he's. Overall, he's had a, a good career. If you kind of look at it as a full package, ignoring a couple of years in WWE, he's got potential for still bottling his career, but we'll see. But there was a lot to kind of cover in that last hour and a half, and I think we've done a good job to cover so much of Nakamura's career. In fact, um, one one point that Strack brought up about the uh, before the show when we were talking is he's also got a bit of a been featured in some music stuff as well. Strack, I it was in the Pharrell Happy Pharrell Williams Happy um, video. That was quite funny. With Okada as well. I know. It's a weird team <laughs> having a music video. 
it's an interesting one. But <laughs> he's an interesting guy, Shinsuke Nakamura. We talk about his charisma. You know, he's a charisma. He's full of it. And I think the Pharrell Williams happy video, if you talk about a, a charisma video, that's the one for you. But, yep, that has been our look back at Shinsuke Nakamura's career. I hope you've enjoyed listening to that. We do a lot of the- we do a lot of these profile shows on the podcast, and if you have, you can catch them all on a back catalogue, which on any good podcasting site, just search for us, Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. And you can also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex, Retweet. We've got a lot of great content still coming up on the podcast over the rest of 2020. We've got our usual ESSR Central show, which comes out every Thursday. This show, of course, comes out on a Tuesday, uh, where you can hear our team talk about all the latest goings on in the world of professional wrestling from the week prior. We've also got our regular shows as well that come out not on a weekly basis, but well, some of them come out on a weekly basis. We've got Saturday the Draft Live, of course, where we go over our fantasy wrestling league, which is a lot of great fun for us here. And we've also got some listener participation in it this year, which is good. Uh, and there's also East Meets West, of course, with Grant and Scott. Uh, you've got a few tournaments you have to go through. It may have came out before this show came out. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> this is going out. This is obviously out today on the 15th. You may have recorded your latest show before then. Yeah, yeah. But hopefully by the end of this week, you'll be hearing it uh, or a wrap up of the latest tournaments that have just happened. Plenty to talk about. Wrestle Kingdom's only a few weeks away, you know? So. <laughs> You boys will be busy on the on YouTube as well. As I said, we've got the our book it series is, is obviously in full swing. Next week after this show's rec- obviously next goes the next battle is actually between myself and Grant, where the winner takes on Strack in the book it tournament. After he beats Scott, you can catch that on our YouTube. Sorry, spoiler. That's I don't care. Uh, you can catch catch that on YouTube as well. In terms of the feature content, uh, we've also we've got a feature of WWE show that's coming out in a couple of weeks. And we've also got our Viscera Christmas special. Yeah. I'm sure that I'm sure that's still on the schedule. <laughs> Damn right. And uh, it's gone. <laughs> uh, I'm sure Gary's going to have fun with that one. But we've got loads of pack stuff coming up in 2021, including hopefully a more COVID vaccine. But that's not for us. That's just for the world. Uh, you'll find out about our schedule for next year in the coming weeks. But... From us here on the, on this week's show, I'd like to thank my panel. First of all, Scott McLeod. Thank you very much. Uh, to Grant McRobbie, thank you. Thank you very much. And to Strack, thank you. Cheers, mate. All right. We will see you on our next show. From us here, I'll be Stephen Wilson, and we'll see you then. Hello, I am the GOAT, David Campbell, and I would like to invite you, the listener, to my new show over at Eat Sleep Suplex Retweets YouTube channel, and that show is The Conspiracy Theory, where once a month, I will be taking a look at all the rumours and speculation in the world of professional wrestling and giving the most important opinion on the matter. My opinion. Yes, that's right. Head over to Suplex Retweet's YouTube channel. Like, share and subscribe where you'll get a lot of other great content over there, such as the new hit show, Quiz Showdown. But don't forget, check out my new show, The Conspiracy Theory, on Suplex Retweet's YouTube channel. Farewell, friends.